Hello and welcome to Guru Please, the show about pushing the limits of life and stepping up to live with more meaning, more purpose, and more passion. I'm your host, Jessica Sun. I'm really pleased to introduce Rachel Brownstein. Rachel is a UK-based public speaker and a former sex worker. She talks openly about her experience working in the sex industry in the hope of educating people about the reality of sex work and dispelling misconceptions. After eight years in the sex industry, she has strong views about the need for clear and honest sex education. She's also the face of the vegan cooking YouTube channel, Auntie Rachel's Chaotic Kitchen. Welcome to the show, Rachel. Hi, thank you very much for having me on. So there's a lot going on in your life, and I figure we'll just get started by talking about your experience in the sex industry, and then we'll go over to veganism. So how did you get started in sex work? And, you know, what impelled you to kind of go in that direction? Uh, The short answer is money. Uh, So I was sick of working minimum wage for sort of 12 hours a day in restaurants. And I thought there must be a different a different way it's something you know there must be a better way of earning a, um, a more substantial amount of money I have on paper relatively low amount of education just the kind of high school mm-hmm. teaching and then some vocational qualifications so I thought okay what can I do that's going to give you know kind of doctor lawyer types of money without the education to match that and sex work kind of popped into my head So I thought for a while there were a strip club opened in Leeds and I thought, oh, maybe I could work there, but then got concerned that somebody would see me in there and how I would deal with that. Mm. So I kind of put the idea out of my head for a bit and then I guess maybe a year, something like that, maybe two years went past and then the same issues came up that I was just tired all the time and just feeling very overworked and undervalued and just decided to start escorting and when I say escorting I mean kind of in call uh, prostitution basically rather than dinner dates and that kind of thing Mm -hmm. Uh, so I reached out to uh, an agency in Leeds was it Leeds maybe Yorkshire which is the county that I live in did a couple of jobs for them and it was just so unremarkable in a way I was shocked I suppose thinking oh i perhaps would have thought I'd have more of a it would have more of a mark on me than it did but I don't remember anything about the first time it happened about the first job that I had so to me I guess it must be it must have been so unremarkable that it's just passed me by you know and Mm -hmm. other things other pop (laughs) pop lyrics have filled up my brain instead Mm -hmm. and it wasn't there wasn't enough work really to to still get me out of the the restaurant trade, you know, and to sort of be a reliable income. Mm -hmm. So I went back to dancing, found a club uh, in another town a bit further away and worked there for a while. And then customers, because I'm very large in the uh, breast department, (laughs) so the guys would come in and say, oh, my God, you should be in page three. So page three is a... I don't think they do it anymore, but so it's like a tabloid. So things like the Daily Mail and the Sun. Mm -hmm. And on the third page, they would have topless photos of women, uh, typically with large boobs. (laughs) So they were like, you know, you should do this. You'd be great. Mm -hmm. So I found uh, a studio slash agency in Leeds and joined the guy's books and then did a lot of stuff for kind of amateur photographers who would book the studio and book a model. We do photo sets and stuff. Mm-hmm. And then I was scouted by a magazine called Score, which again is the kind of a large breast niche magazine. And they sort of brought me down to London for a photo shoot. And the photographer was friends with a, a director, producer of pornographic films. And he said, you know, if you ever want to try doing adult films let me know and I'll hook you up together I think you'd be great so I kind of went away from that and thought is this something I can do how do I feel about that Mm -hmm. and I it sort of boiled down to well I'd done the escorting and hadn't had any you know lasting ill feelings about myself Mm -hmm. I didn't have any kind of you know crises of conscience or anything Uh, so in the end decided yeah I'm going to go go for it try it see what happens Mm -hmm. so we 
booked my first shoot and had a fantastic couple of days, a lot of fun, a lot of laughs. And at the end of it, they handed me this big wad of cash and were like, you know, if you want to shoot with us again, we'd love to see you. Uh, and also I have a friend in LA. So if you ever want to go out to America, you, you know, I can hook you up with an agent out there. So yeah, that was kind of my start into adult films mm. and it just not snowballed because that sounds out of control, but it just unfolded, I suppose would be a better way of, of describing it. Okay. Okay. And at the time, were you open with friends and family about what you were doing or was that not a concern? So with friends, yes, I was kind of, uh, yeah, because I told people where I was going. So there was always a safety net, especially for the escorting mm. and with the adult films as well. And my parents, I just said I was doing nude modeling for a while. Mm-hmm. And then it sort of became apparent that they knew there was more to it than that. Um, but yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's interesting that you said, you know, the first time it didn't really leave a lasting kind of impression on you. Did you enjoy the work or was it purely for financial reasons? Um, hmm. <laughs> That's a good question. It was, I think the enjoyment came at least in part because of the kind of freedom it, that it gave, that I could choose my working hours. Mm-hmm. You know, I could say if I was feeling off one day, I could say, well, I don't want to work. You know, I'm not going to work today. And I found that quite uh, I don't know if liberating is quite the right word for it, but definitely freeing. It's mm-hmm. sort of, you know, I was earning enough money that I could do that, that I could say I'm not going to work for the next, for the rest of the week. And that would be okay. I wouldn't be suffering for money or anything. Mm-hmm. And I guess there was, I like meeting people, you know, I like chatting to people. So that was, there was enjoyment there. The sex was usually average, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, at best, really, in for the escorting. Uh, but there was, you know, it is nice to to be physical with somebody else and to kind of share uh, an experience together. I always find that kind of, uh, what's the word? I'm trying to think of a, of a fitting word for it and I'm struggling. But it's kind of, you know, creating a shared moment together. Mm-hmm. of physical touch you know in a sort of meeting of minds in a way mm-hmm. obviously it's not that deep it's just sex <laughs> there's yeah. not much more to it really um but there was you know there's definitely you know it wasn't about yeah I'm going to go to work and have loads of sex and that's amazing it wasn't really about that it was just you know I'm going to call the shots in my own life and enough money to pay all of my bills and have enough left over for myself to do nice things with mm-hmm. and I think that was where the enjoyment came from if that makes sense yeah definitely what are some misconceptions people have about sex work and why do you think there's a stigma to it oh so I one thing that I keep coming up against or coming across perhaps is when I so when I do my public speaking people come up to me afterwards and and they say I have to be honest I thought you were going to be really stupid Mm. um and it's, you know, sitting and listening to you has made me realize that I've got these judgments and these preconceptions about people in the sex industry. And I mm-hmm. and they're wrong. And I don't know what I'm basing this on, apart from the sort of media representations. And I think sex workers are usually plot devices or props in, say, TV dramas like CSI. You know, there's always a dead prostitute that, you know, mm-hmm. nobody really cares about, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- again, this is this is me sort of wondering and making assumptions, but I think there has been a concerted effort to demonize women who are in control of their own sexuality. You know, Mm -hmm. is that the patriarchy? Is that just society as a whole? I think more research needs to be done on that. And we need to listen to each other to get a bit of a better understanding. But I certainly think that women who A, are vocal about their enjoyment of sex, are you know have been taught that you're bad I mean in England for example I grew up in the 80s and 90s and I always got the looking back now I always had the impression that sex was something that women endured or tolerated rather than being active participants in it Mm. so there's there's phrases like doing your wifely duty or just lay back and think of England you know, these just really weird, passive, you know, sex was something that was done to female bodies rather than 
women having sex and enjoying it. And I guess that has to come come back to centuries, decades, whatever it is of conditioning that women aren't supposed to enjoy sex. And therefore, women that do enjoy sex and even monetize their sexuality are just demonized because it's, Mm. well, we can't have that. We can't have women be independent because if they have their own money, what do they need men for? (laughs) I think there's a, a lot of interest to keep women suppressed physically, emotionally, sexually whichever way it is it's like the more we can vilify these women who are selling sexual services or exchanging sex for finance or gifts or that kind of thing the more we can tell society that these women are evil or you know slattens or you know all these horrific words that we've all grown up around yeah it just it keeps reinforcing that um that stigma the shame and then I think the more shame that's felt, the deeper entrenched it becomes in, in the in the public conscious. You know, there's, well, this woman should feel shame. Why doesn't she feel shame? Well, therefore, I'm going to make her feel ashamed. Right, right. I mean, you've been stalked, doxxed. You've been fired for this um, mm-hmm. when, when employers knew about what you've done. Like, yeah. Have you ever taken that shame on or have you always been very much open and vocal about how to take away the stigma and and be just open and bold about sex work i've always been honest about it so when i was in the film industry it's i never i I've, from the beginning said i'm this isn't something i'm going to lie about so it's you know as soon as you meet somebody new whether that's you know on a date or friendship group or that kind of thing what do you do for a living oh okay (laughs) so this is what we're doing and in fact I was speaking to a friend earlier you know and it's like friends of mine would say why don't you just avoid the question I'm like there's only so so much avoiding you can do before it starts becoming obvious it's like why won't this woman speak to me about why won't she answer the questions that I'm putting to her what and then it becomes more of a thing than it needs to be. So I just decided to approach it head on, be open and honest and upfront about it. Mm-hmm. And then after I left the industry, I kind of, it wasn't that I was hiding it, but it was just, I was trying to walk away. And just because I make no profit from any of the films or anything. So there is no benefit to me acknowledging it anymore in mm-hmm. a way. So And then after, so it was on my CV, actor or model. And then after the first time I was fired, I made an effort with the the second employer to say, it says actor or model on my CV, but you need to know I was doing adult content. Mm -hmm. And they were, okay, yeah, that's not a problem, not a problem at all. And then I got recognized and then it went back to head office and then I got fired. And it's just like, what what am I supposed to do? Like, if I don't say anything, I get fired. If I do say something, I get fired. You know, I just, there's literally nothing I can do that's right for other people. So Mm. I just had to kind of try and model my way through life, just speaking openly and just deciding whatever I do, somebody's going to object to it. And that's more about them than it is me. You know, I can only do what feels right for me and what feels in alignment for my values. You speak about this topic of wearing your past as your armor. Can you talk a bit more about that? Yeah. So again, it's this trying to see the find value. Let me start that again. So it's about finding value in your life experiences and whether that's, you know, you've spent time in prison or you have done things that your family doesn't like, or you've, you know, you've behaved in a way that your friends disapprove of, you know, trying to find little nuggets of information and insight that you have and using that to help you move forward and sort of push through the rest of your life instead of living to other people's ideal perceptions of you, living truthfully and authentically. As much as that word gets bandied around at the moment, authentic, authentic, it's true. You you just can't I found at least you can't live your life for other people because it's exhausting constantly trying to live up to somebody else's ideal version of you is just 
it's, it's just tiring, you know, and mm. it just becomes self-defeating in a way because you, you never get to that ideal, you know, the ideal that they have of you. You'll never hit that. There'll always be, we could be a bit better, just a little bit better. And then I'll love you fully. And you're just never going to reach it. How did you move away from that way of thinking and being? Um, hmm. <laughs> I've always been very uh, belligerent, I think is the best way <laughs> to describe it. Very stubborn, very willful. I've always questioned authority. You know, I need to know, you know, if a teacher in school was saying, you need to do this, I'd be like, why? It doesn't make any sense. Explain it to me and then I'll do it. But if it doesn't make sense, I'm not going to do it. Mm. You know, whether that's uh, a good thing or a bad thing, I don't know. It's just that's just how I am and that's how I operate. There needs to be a reason for this insanity that you're trying to get me to do, because at the moment it just seems like a silly waste of time that's mm. just pointless for both of us. And I've had I've had a lot of therapy over the years. So I've had psychotherapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectical behavior therapy. And I think each of the different types has taught me a different set of skills. So, for example, in the DBT, it was created by uh, Dr. Marsha Linehan. And she spent a lot of time studying Buddhism and has kind of taken elements of Buddhist practice and kind of distilled that down into a more uh, I guess, Western-friendly treatment plan. But it's, you know, at, it, at its heart, it's mindfulness and radical acceptance, interpersonal skills. And I think it's given me a nice little toolkit of stuff to be able to, to take a step back and think, okay, what do I want to get out of this interaction? How do I want to feel about myself after this interaction? Because that ultimately... I think the more comfortable we, we are with ourselves, then the more comfortable and open we can be with other people and the more loving and kind we can be to everybody else. And I think a lot of that as well comes down to vulnerability. You know, Brené Brown talks beautifully about the magic of being vulnerable and mm. being honest and open with other people, whether that person then turns around and, you know, behaves appallingly towards you, at least if you can sit back and think, well, I went into that interaction with the best of intentions and then that person mistreated me. But that is that, you know, that is then down to the other person. That's never a, a mark of you. And I think that we're just not taught that, at least in England anyway. Yeah. We're just not yeah. taught to be that way. You know, it's, it's always there's a lot of modesty, you know, you've got to be humble. And I'm like, mm. you know, there's a difference between, I think, humble and self-deprecating. Mm. And it was, uh, what's her name? I want to say Hannah Gadsby, the comedian. Mm -hmm. She did a, a sketch, not a sketch, a show called, oh goodness, what was it? Maybe Hannah? No, Nanette, that's it. And there's a line, I might be paraphrasing here, but she says self-deprecation is self-humiliation and I'm not doing oh. that to myself anymore. And I was like, my goodness, that's perfect. You know, that's so spot on, you know, taking had taken, I'm trying not to swear, uh, taken the mickey, as we say in the UK, out of yourself for the sake of warming to other people. Mm. The more you tell yourself you suck, then the more you start believing it. So yeah. I think we need to, to be very mindful in what we're saying, that even if we're saying it as the joke, we start creating that neural pathway and our, we start believing what we're saying about ourselves. And then suddenly you're lying in bed hating yourself because you've just been making these jokes without realizing, oh, wow, I've just been destroying myself, my, you know, my self-confidence, my self-belief, my self-esteem, my self-worth. I've just pulled it apart for the sake of fitting in with other people. Do you feel like you did that with yourself uh, at some point in time? Like what interested you in CBT, DBT therapy? Was there a point in time where you were seeing these things in yourself? Uh, for me, the therapy was a, a response to depression and anxiety. It was, mm. you know, I was getting really quite unwell and it was like, okay, I need to do something about this and get it under control in order to, you know, to move through life and be uh, at ease with myself. I need to do something about it. I think it, in a way it's difficult to comment truthfully because it's hard to know what is what is just the kind of English humour 
mm. or British humour, really, and what is self-deprecation, what's banter, you know, it's all, it becomes a bit muddied in a way. I don't know if, if Americans have this concept of banter like we have in the UK, but it's, it, to me, it's kind of bullying. It's this really nasty kind of, I guess you'd see it stereotypically amongst guys. You know, they just kind of destroy little bits of each other for the, and it's always, I'm only joking. It's just, I'm just having a laugh, you know. Mm-hmm. And I've tried to stay away from that because I find it cruel in a way. Yeah. And I, I think, again, it feeds back into that. Well, if this person keeps hearing these jokes about their weight or their face or, you know, whatever, their stature, whatever, it's surely going to start affecting them down the line. I recently kind of outed myself on social media and then mm-hmm. suddenly had this outpouring of love and support from all these strangers on the internet. And it was just a sort of really life-affirming moment. And I was in mm. tears reading all these messages, just thinking, my goodness, there's so much kindness out there. And I thought I was going to get so much hatred and I really mm. didn't. And it surprised me and then made me question, why did I expect the worst? What's What was behind that? And I guess that's, you know, the, the uh, again, try not to swear, the, uh, the <laughs> nonsense that I've had to deal with from other people mm. has kind of, turned me into this bitter cynical person that assumes and expects the worst from everyone but I'm trying to unlearn that and listen to my friends when they say people are going to support you and they're going to love you and they're going to be so proud of of what you're doing and they're going to be inspired by you and I you know in the beginning I was like nonsense (laughs) it's all rubbish everyone's gonna hate me Mm. and now I'm like oh actually maybe they were right people don't hate me immediately huh you mean hate you for you know, sex work or what do you mean by that? Okay. I see. Yeah. So I think people have, again, these kind of prejudgments, these preconceptions about what this person's going to be like. And, you know, there's a lot of debate, I suppose we'll be putting it gently about whether sex work is work and, you know, people have very strong attitudes. And if, when people have very strong beliefs, I think they tend to let that, color their view of other people who fit outside of their beliefs yeah so it's and you know obviously if you spend half an hour on twitter you'll see somebody being horrible to somebody else (laughs) so it's it is easy to sort of catastrophize and worst case scenario any interaction that happens on social media because you see so much evidence that supports your belief yeah i mean what really strikes me is that despite all of those kind of negative attitudes of other people or potentially you continue to be very open and honest about your experiences and about who you are most people I think in that position would try to hide away from the truth and push it aside and you know pretend that it wasn't like that yeah I mean I I so when I left the industry Mm -hmm. you know I was kind of I tried to keep my head down in a way, but, you know, if you have any kind of online presence, it's easy to find anybody, especially mm-hmm. because I, you know, I was doxxed and somebody released my real name out into the ether. Mm. So the only way of, of uh, hiding or not being visible would have, would have meant having no online presence. Mm. And I didn't want that. So I guess, uh, I guess I didn't want anonymity as much as I thought I did in a way, you know, cause if I did, then ergo, I would have, you know, not been online, you know, so I make no mention of porn or any, or sex work at all until recently on my social mm. media, but I still get, you know, multiple messages a week from guys like, Oh my God, I love you. And I think you're, you know, I love your work. And I'm like, <laughs> you're talking <laughs> about something that happened over 10 years ago. Oh, wow. I, re- I retired. I think it was 2009. Mm-hmm. So we're going back a long time and these guys are still kind of, you know, still intruding into my life. So it got to the point where I was like, well, keeping my head down hasn't really worked. And, you know, every time I would get 
you know, a notification of so-and-so wants to send you a message or I'd be tagged in something on social media and I'd follow it and it'd be a picture, you know, one of a still or whatever from one of my films. And I just get this sort of feeling and, you know, that where your stomach drops, mm. that <gasps> horrible, anxious kind of feeling. And I, I was sick of feeling that way. And, you know, mm. still I'm sick of feeling that way. So it's like, and it's a bit like, that line in eight mile you know uh, and have now my mind's gone completely blank uh, but basically if you if you take away somebody's power then they've got nothing to attack you with so if I put everything out there and it's I'm in control of how it gets out there then nobody can mm. you know I've had guys say I know your secret <laughs> like well it's wow. not much of a secret is it dumbass <laughs> <laughs> like if three million people on Pornhub have seen my movies, it's not a secret. <laughs> so yeah, it's mm -hmm. that sort of deciding to to just be upfront instead of constantly being on the lookout for an attack. Like, okay, well, if I put everything out there, then there's nothing to attack me with. Mm, and yeah. also I think it whenever I speak or have conversations you know, so whether it's a casual thing or the public speaking, people really seem to engage with what I have to say. And like after the lectures, people always come up and they're like, my goodness, I could just sat and listen to that for hours. And I've got so many questions and you've just mm. helped me understand things a little bit better. Mm. So I kind of feel a sense of responsibility, maybe in a way, that if I can help people who are sex workers currently, you know, if by me speaking about my experiences and if that helps them be more protected and more, more welcomed or less, you know, creates a less hostile environment, then I feel like I have to do it. I feel this compulsion to do it. And it's, it's mm. coming at my detriment. Don't get me wrong, but mm. if I can help, you know, evoke change in society. If I can help, laws be rewritten and have protections put in place for workers not just sex workers but workers everywhere because there is exploitation everywhere you know work is inherently exploitative mm. so we need to start addressing these issues instead of ban this and stop that and mm. you know making these bombastic claims it just isn't helpful in the you know ideologies are all well and good but it's the day-to-day -day living of people that's what we need to be concerned about and you know and 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 dealing with you know people are saying kids are learning terrible things from porn it's like okay well why are they looking at porn well because they want sex education i'm like well why aren't they getting that in school like mm. how can you how can you hear that statement and think banning porn is the answer how can you not think we need to teach these kids the things that they're trying to teach themselves, but let's do it in a way that's much more balanced, uh, you know? And I, I've said this before, but it's like if your kid comes to you and say, oh, I want, I want to learn how to drive, would you put them in front of the Fast and the Furious? No. So why are you allowing them to look at, you know, porn is a really amped up souped up you know version of sex it's just not representative of the day-to-day -day sex that I have you know and that's and that's me as a porn star mm -hmm. retired porn star albeit but you know I don't have that kind of sex in real life that's just not typical it's just not a play it's not necessarily comfortable it's not necessarily pleasurable it's just it's acting you know in a very very extreme way yeah yeah Wow. No, I mean, truly what you said is inspiring because it's not only wearing your past as your armor, you're actually wielding it as your power and you're taking, you know, what you've experienced and saying, look, there's deeper issues at play here and I want to use this to help other people in a similar situation and, you know, use what I know to get the word out there in some sense and also to educate people in a in a more correct way or in a more realistic way in terms of how to have sex and seeing it not as something evil or bad but finding the reasons that young people are watching porn and seeking that and not trying to criminalize it 
Yeah, I think, you know, kids are looking at this stuff and they don't have any real, uh, you know, kind of real world experience. So mm-hmm. like I spoke to a group of young boys, I guess, between the ages of perhaps uh, like 11 and 15. And we were kind of chatting about porn and their expectations. And, you know, one of them was like, oh, it's just really disappointing because none of the girls look like the women in porn. I was like, right, okay. And do you think you look like the men in porn? (laughs) You know, and it's just this complete dissonance, really, that they don't understand. They haven't been shown how to understand the images that they're seeing is entertainment. Mm. It's not meant to be instructional. It is not meant to be informative. It's just meant to be entertainment and stimulating. It's just not meant to be representative of what sex is or is not. And I think that's where that's what the areas that needs to be improved like porn literacy helping kids understand and contextualize the things that they might be seeing online because even if they're not actively looking for porn if they're on twitter that you know it's all over mm. you know you just you you know you're doing the timeline scroll in the toilet in the morning I'm like oh my god there's somebody sucking somebody else i didn't need that it's 7 p you know 7 a.m i just didn't need to see that right now so it's you know, it's ridiculous to assume that kids aren't going to be exposed to explicit material. Right. So let's, how about we try and protect them and help them not protect, that was the wrong word. Let's help them understand what they're seeing and understand that these are actors and they're portraying characters and that they're under the guidance of a director and a, a lighting mm-hmm. person and a catering company and a production assistant. And, you know, it, and it's, yeah. and these body types, I think particularly for the men, you know, men are largely and you know quite well endowed in in porn, mm-hmm. and I think guys are getting this um, this expectation or this you know they're seeing oh I need to look like that and if I don't then I'm not a man or I'm not worthy or something and it's just like no it's because the positions are so extreme in porn because you need to be able to get cameras in there, mm-hmm. so you have to have length in order to get the camera angle so. Uh, without getting too graphic, you know, in a in a missionary position, for example, the male performer has to be <laughs> trying to describe this and kind of in a way that's going to make sense. So the woman's going to be on her back with her legs wide open, but then she has to have a breast in shot and a face in shot. And then the guy has to be kind of contorted backwards on his knees while he's penetrating her. So if, if a guy has an average size penis, it's just going to fall out because of the angle because you need Mm. to get the camera in there so a lot of it is kind of practical things it's not saying guys with huge knobs are wonderful that's the only people that should be having sex that's Mm. not at all what what life is (laughs) you know it's yeah it's just about these kind of the practicalities of shooting movies and I think more people need to understand that you know it's 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 just not representative of real world sex Yeah, absolutely. And it actually kind of raises the issue of all kinds of media. I mean, regular movies and still images, all of it is created, fabricated, and very deliberately crafted. And with porn, especially, this is something so personal to all of us in terms of kind of insinuating what should you look like? How should you have sex? And it's it was never meant to be that kind of thing, but many people kind of take it as such because there's no other way to find out about it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I'm going back, well, so I guess 25 years, something when I think back about the sex education that I got at school and it was just the bare minimum. It was, you know, how to put a condom on a penis and, you know, and then the guys are taken out the room and we're told about periods (laughs) And that's it. There was no mention of the clitoris. You know, there's no mention of pleasure, really, in terms of uh, from the woman's female's perspective. It's all very phallocentric, you know, making babies and how not to make babies, you know, Mm -hmm. contraception, that kind of stuff. There's just no. And and there was so much embarrassment as well. And, you know, you keep seeing this same thing repeated that kids cringe when, you know, sex education comes about. But then you quite often find that it, 
the te- the person teaching them is their history teacher or their maths teacher or yeah. and it's like how can you expect these kids to take this seriously if the next lesson is about the history of agriculture and you know the teachers just been teaching them about plowing <laughs> you know it's just i think it's just wide open for for nobody to take it seriously the teachers don't want to be in that position because it's embarrassing the kids are just like oh my god this is cringeworthy so we need to start looking at different ways of getting this information, like this truly precious information into these young minds in a way that they don't find so embarrassing or, you know, cause I think if you're embarrassed, you, you stop listening and you stop absorbing. It's like, Oh, I'll just get this. I want this to be done with. I just need to get out of here. Cause I, my skin is crawling. Yeah. So, you know, let's start looking at the different ways in which we can, get information out there and then we can speak to young adults as adults and speak to them re- you know respectfully instead of trying to dumb things down and and make it you know family friendly that kind of thing let's let's it, let's talk about sex baby yeah. you know mm. yeah i just love your insights on like what could be improved and kind of the status quo at the moment and just sounds like you've really taken the time to consider all these things and make suggestions around it. And the fact that you're speaking about your experiences, I think really shed some light on what sex is or what sex education could be and how porn is not the best substitute for good sex education. Absolutely. It's, I mean, you know, it comes with, I guess, age and experience and distance. You know, once you've Mm -hmm. had these experiences, you can then reflect on it for years. And then suddenly at two in the morning, you're like, oh, I've just had an insight, (laughs) Um, (laughs) you know, and I'm uh, and I don't want anyone to be under the assumption that I what I'm saying is my way is the only way and I have all of the answers and do this and everything will be fine. That's not at all what my goal is. What I'm asking is that people start having these conversations and start having an well an open dialogue really on how we can make improvements that aren't going to extremes you know so let's stop trying to ban things because it's just going to push everything deeper and deeper and deeper underground we're going to end up with kids on the deep web and then possibly the dark net and that's not Mm. where we want children to be but if they're really curious they're going to try and find this knowledge because mum and dad won't answer the questions because they're too embarrassed so let's try nipping this in the bud before it starts teaching people properly and if that doesn't work in 10 15 years then let's try something else but prohibition has never worked so let's try a different way Mm. yeah no that's a great point and what we're seeing with sex or porn addiction it's skyrocketing i mean this is a real problem yeah. <laughs> so there's a, a chap called Dr. David Lay, and there's also Dr. Justin LeMiller. Now, it, porn addiction, it, this is a difficult one for me to answer because I'm not a doctor, I'm not a scientist, but so porn addiction isn't a, isn't a diagnosed disease or illness or, you know, pattern in the brain. It's what is more likely to be happening is that people are forming uh, sort of compulsive behaviors towards pornography, but mm-hmm. that kind of labeling it as an addiction ignores what these people are trying to do. And quite mm. often it's a way of self-soothing. So they're watching porn and masturbating because the orgasm then soothes their anxiety or their grief or their shame or the myriad mm-hmm. other negative emotions that human experience, humans experience. Uh-huh. So by yeah. labeling it as an addiction saying we can treat this, you're not treating the underlying problem. Like the, an- mm-hmm. the question should be is why is this young man masturbating for six hours a day to the point that he's not working, he's not learning, he's not doing anything but knocking one out you know what is going on for him that we that's driving him to to look at this form of entertainment for you know whether it's pleasure or relief or comfort or you know all of these kind of things that's what we need to start looking at and start treating whether that's through talking therapies or you know whatever methods are used but we just need to be very careful 
there are a lot of unethical people out there who are putting themselves out there as porn addiction therapists and they're actually mm. causing way more damage and they're making these people have some very deep-seated problems later on in life that, that cannot be undone without heavy amounts of therapy and medication right. so again it's it's an industry that's booming because pornography is booming so there is you know there are obviously there are people working within that realm who are genuinely trying to help people but then there are others who are unethical just as there are in every other industry you know there is ethical people yeah. and unethical but we just need to be very careful about making claims about addiction in terms of pornography you know use of pornography yeah yeah i think what you're saying is that excessive use of porn isn't the real issue like there's an underlying issue so porn use that's an indication of something much deeper that may not be talked about or brought up it certainly can be that's right so it's you know i know of one person who is a counselor and she had a, a client who believed himself to be addicted to pornography but it went mm -hmm. back to you know, sort of parental arguing and a hostile home environment. And the mm -hmm. only thing that would bring him any kind of distraction or relief from that was masturbating and therefore porn, you know, because he, he just, you know, he'd watch porn and then be hard and then would orgasm and then for a minute feel peace, mm -hmm. you know, and then it, that was the only thing that brought any kind of comfort. So it yeah. just becomes deeper and deeper ingrained, the worse the external problems become. Because if you're not addressing the external problems, the compulsion is just going to get deeper and deeper because it's the only thing bringing you any any sense of things are things are okay. You know, for just this 30 seconds post-orgasm bliss, things are all right and I don't hate myself or I don't hate the world or all of these other kind of narratives that we have. I mean, I, I'm by no means an expert on this area, so I do encourage listeners to take that time. And if you like, Jessica, I can email you their Twitter handles just so people yeah. can do their own exploring and learning. Because I'm still learning, you know, I, mm. I find this stuff on Twitter every day and I'm like, my word, I didn't know anything about this. And I hadn't considered that. Wow, I need to clearly learn more about this and in a bid to help other people. And yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's so much out there that can open up our perspective on things. And really help us get that bigger picture on what's going on. Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Let's shift the gears and talk about veganism. Cause I know yes. that's kind of a really big part of your life right now. And you're just, you're an interesting person, you know, you have <laughs> servers, <laughs> right? and I want to make sure we touch on like different aspects of who you are and why veganism, why, and also on top of why veganism, you have a cooking channel. So you want to kind of inform others about how to cook as a vegan and how to make food that tastes good. What compels you to do all this? So I went from a kind of everything to nothing because <laughs> I never do things by halves. So I went, <laughs> I was the kind of person that would, uh, hang on, how am I going to phrase this? <laughs> Okay, myself in trouble. Uh, okay, so I put it this way. I would go to a, an all-you-can-eat steak place and I would get my money's worth. You know, I, <laughs> I loved meat, loved it. But then I just became more and more aware of what was involved with animal culture, mm. animal agriculture. So a friend of mine became vegan on face friend and, and then, you know, on Facebook as well. And she would start posting things. And then I would start looking at these videos. And then the more you look at something on Facebook, the more the algorithm shows you. And so I was just watching these horrific videos for hours, you know, put out there by animal charities and things like Dominion, Cowspiracy, Land of Hope and Glory. Mm -hmm. And I just became more and more aware of what was going on and then becoming less and less comfortable with me being part of it. Mm. And I just, I got to the point where I'd eat something, like I'd eat a bacon sandwich and I'd start getting these almost freeze frame images in my head of, of one of these atrocities that I'd seen in these videos. And I'd, and I'd then feel really awful about myself after eating it. 
And it got to the point, I was like, this is just unpleasant. You know, this is serving no function at all other than making me feel horrible about myself. So something's got to have to change. Uh, you know, what What am I going to do? Mm-hmm. So I just decided uh, in, I guess it would have been December 17, I think, if I'm getting my dates right. And I was like, right, as of next January, I'm going to be vegan. <laughs> it was this sort of and it was easier in a way for me because I've always been kind of the sort of cook that's just very throw things in a pot and see what happens you know and I have had that ability from a young age of being a bit creative in the kitchen and having loads of random ingredients in the cupboard loads of different spices and stuff so it, it, it was easier I imagine than somebody who is going very you know, kind of meat and two veg kind of eating to then having to suddenly cook plants from scratch. I, I, cannot, I can't imagine how challenging that must be, if I'm honest. So, you know, and then when lockdown happened, I, I could feel myself heading into a major depressive episode. So I was like, okay, what am I going to do to kind of pull myself back out of this? So I started cooking. And started baking and uh, sort of being a bit experimental with baking because I've, for me, baking's always been quite scientific, whereas cooking was sort of more playful. But yeah, baking always intimidated me a bit. So I just started experimenting and posting pictures on social media. And a couple of my friends were like, why don't you start a YouTube channel? Because I think people would love to learn how to cook the way you do. So I did. <laughs> That's what, I, that's what I decided to do just again, because I don't do things by half. So I spent the summer, like one of the hottest summers on record. I spent it in the kitchen, <laughs> just <laughs> like sweating um, and just exploring ingredients and plants and how you can make, you know, a pie out of a sweet potato and how you can make butter out of apples and just all this really cool stuff. And I just get really geeky about it. And I just, yeah, I just, I love this sort of playfulness and then at the end of it I've got something amazing to eat yeah what are some of the kind of top things or recipes or findings that you've kind of come across in your experimentation one of my favorite ingredients is sweet potato it's Mm -hmm. just so versatile Mm -hmm. so I've made for Christmas for example I did a chocolate and chestnut sweet potato tart Wow. Um, with a chocolate ganache on top. And then on the side, served it with a spiced ginger cherry butter. So it's like fruit puree, and then you reduce it in the oven till it goes really thick and gorgeous. Hmm. And I made fudge out of a sweet potato. Wow. <laughs> made pate out of a sweet potato. It's just this <laughs> humble little yellow thing, orange thing that sits in my drawer and then comes alive when I chuck it in the Instant Pot. it's just like I don't know I just I have I have that kind of brain that once I start thinking about something I can't leave it alone so I Mm -hmm. frequently keep myself up till three in the morning like oh okay but what would happen if I put a sweet potato inside something else or what if I did that with that and I'm like okay yeah and I'll write it down and then I'm like yeah but then what and then what and then (laughs) And then and I'm suddenly concocting this really elaborate thing in my head and just getting very excited about it. Like today mm-hmm. I did, uh, I made a creme brulee out of silken tofu, condensed milk and uh, coconut cream. And then wow. made some hazelnut twills and then made an apricot butter. <laughs> so that's what I was doing right wow. before we started Zooming. But wow. that... That is one that I was up till, I think, three in the morning last week. Like, okay, what am I going to do? But then what? (laughs) And, oh, what can I do on the side? And it's just this, it kind of, I think what it is for me is it's because I'm a creative person. It's a creative outlet that has immediate or near immediate results. Whereas, Mm -hmm. so I act in mainstream films now. So when I act, I have to wait for things to go through editing and go to distributors and you know, there's always, you have to rely on other people. Same with the writing, same with the public speaking. Everything involves other people and lots of time. But cooking, I can get in the kitchen and two hours later, I've got something amazing to eat. And mm-hmm. it's a very rewarding. And I guess 
it kind of, I don't know, perhaps it reinforces some sort of self-belief, you know, like I can do this. I've got control over at least one aspect in my life when the rest of the world is turning to chaos outside my curtains, at least inside my kitchen, there is harmony. And that's Mm -hmm. very empowering and kind of grounding, stabilizing. These are the words that are kind of popping up as I'm saying it. So it's, yeah, it's having, having control over something, having the ability to nourish myself. I think that's crucial. We're so far removed from our food these days. And I'm, you know, I buy so much out of packets. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying you have to grow everything, but although, you know, my, my toilet is now becoming home to lots of different plants because I, you know, eat an avocado and then stick the stone in a glass and leave it on the back of the toilet to see what happens. (laughs) So it's, Hmm. there is a certain amount of fun. And I think that's what we need, just fun in something simple, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, let's dispel some misconceptions about veganism and maybe if you could talk about how it's affected your health as well. I'm interested to know more. Um, so to be <laughs> completely honest, I haven't noticed a huge health benefit, but I've got multiple health conditions that I live with. So I have something called Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and it's a connective tissue disorder that can affect pretty much, well, in me, it affects every part of my body. So digestive Mm. system, joints, respiratory system, skin, all of this stuff. So it is difficult for me to say, yeah, assuredly, I felt much better after getting rid of meat. But the major thing for me was living in line with my values and then the psychological impact that that had that uh, I think was very healing in its own way because I suddenly wasn't having this awful feelings about myself having eaten meat and then hating myself for doing it I didn't have that anymore so it was like I felt much more positive about what I was doing and how I was acting within the world the cognitive dissonance yeah you got rid of that yeah, exactly. You know, because you'd see these things on on social media about, uh, I think I'm pronouncing this right, like the Yulin Dog Eating Festival in China. Mm-hmm. And people would just be so outraged by it. And then I'd think, okay, but why, you know, you're putting down your cheeseburger to rage tweet about how wrong it is to <laughs> eat dogs. And I just think this is really mm-hmm. odd. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like, why is some animals okay to eat and some aren't? That mm-hmm. I, I got to the point, it didn't make sense anymore. So, yeah, it just, I mean, the the other thing I noticed is I lost weight, but my clothes still fit the same. So I don't know if I was losing, uh, what's it called? I want to say visceral fat, the stuff that sticks around your organs. So maybe I was starting to shed that, and, uh, you know, so there was a sort of benefit, I suppose, in my, my jawline has become more defined but I still eat like a pig. You know, I don't, I don't diet. I don't restrict the quantity, just whatever I'm craving. I'll eat it. If I want an entire bag of Doritos, I'll eat it as long as they're vegan, obviously as an addendum. But, you know, I, yeah, I just think it's difficult because I'm not a nutritionist. I'm not studied in, in nutrition or anything like that. So I don't want to be making spurious health claims. about. But obviously, plants are good for us fruit and vegetables are good for us you know and that's undisputed so I think by increasing my input I guess intake of of uh, I don't eat so much fruit it's more veg because I love vegetables so increasing that uh, the amount of veg that I was eating had positive effects in other ways so perhaps you know having so I can eat a massive meal and not feel painfully full whereas if i'd have eaten the same thing but a meaty version you know you'd you feel it in a different way i can't mm. quite explain it in a way that makes sense until you felt that feeling but mm. so in fact i had a couple of years ago i guess it must be now i had a rebel whopper so like the plant-based burger from burger king mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and i was like i feel full but normally fast food would sit in my gut for ages and just feel awful as I was trying to digest it. But the Mm. Rebel Whopper, I just found, it was like I felt satiated. I wasn't hungry anymore and I could feel it in my tummy. But I didn't have that leaden, horrible, nasty feeling in my gut anymore. And I was like, maybe, I guess guess meat must have a heavier toll on the body to, to digest it and break it down. 
and I'm just not feeling that anymore. Hmm. Let's talk about how somebody who's interested in veganism can kind of enter the scene, so to speak, and get started if if they're inclined. So I, one thing I've I've noticed people. They, they kind of say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to be vegan. <laughs> I'm going to go vegan. And it's a very mm-hmm. sudden thing. And then they, you know, quote unquote, fall off the wagon. And then they feel awful about themselves because they've had a slip mm-hmm. uh, and then just go back to eating meat and stuff like that. So for me, I always try and advise, maybe don't, <laughs> don't do it the way I did it. Uh, do as I say, not as I do you know, maybe start small and do one day a week, have some, have a completely plant-based day, you know, until you find your feet with how to cook different ingredients, you know, vegan foods, and then increase that, you know, two days a week, three days, three days a week, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Because it's going to take time. Like I mentioned earlier, unless you've got a really well-stocked pantry, it's going to be very expensive to suddenly switch to vegan because mm. you, when you don't have the texture for meat of meat, you then start looking for other sensations, uh, you know, so in terms of flavors or textures in your mouth. Mm. And I've noticed since going vegan, I can better analyze what the experience was of eating meat. Like what, what was I enjoying about that? Okay. So it was the way it felt between my back teeth. It was the, the juice that would be released as I bit into it. And so once I had that insight, I could then start trying to work around ways of getting that from plants things that just aren't typically as chewy and it's like okay so that's why a lot of vegans love hot sauce because it just gives you something exciting in your mouth (laughs) that a carrot doesn't have so you know so there's yeah be considered be mindful and and don't expect yourself to be perfect and be a you know the ideal vegan in a week because that's Mm -hmm. possibly setting yourself up for failure and then I went to my kind of local bookstore in in Leeds and just grabbed a few vegan cookbooks and sat down and read some of the recipes and thought Mm. which one stands out to me you know oh I kind of I like the flavors they're describing or the ingredients they're using, I think I would enjoy cooking that. So I kind of, the first day, I think I bought two or three and then just spent the day reading them and thinking, mm. okay, this gives me a lot of ideas of, you know, how I can cook going forward and the things I need to have ready in my store cupboard all of the time, that kind of thing. And think you know we're so fortunate and also so so cursed that we live in a in an age of youtube that people like myself are just putting content out there for free and there's so many resources you know i i watch there's a woman called it's connie's rawsome kitchen so she does a lot of vegan stuff and then there's sauce stash he does a load of he does a lot of meat replacements Mm -hmm. uh meat substitutes so it's just finding a youtuber that speaks to you in a way that you like watching so i you know mm-hmm. i'll i'll stick some channels on and just watch them until i fall asleep and i'm kind of taking in information passively rather than i'm not cooking along with their recipes i'm just getting ideas and storing facts away for later use and i mm-hmm. find that can be quite uh, educational i suppose in a way and it's you know people demystifying ingredients and kind of showing you what happens when you use a certain ingredients what to expect and what to look out for and that's in my videos I always try and explain why I'm using something because I think you know especially on television cooking shows the the chefs will just chuck stuff in but they don't tell you why they're doing it so you're mm. not really all you all you can do is then follow that recipe, but you, you don't have any knowledge of why you're using these things. So you can't then really apply it to anything else. You yeah. know, it's not as experimental. So I try and give people, you know, knowledge and entertainment, and, but, you know, also a bit of confidence of, oh, OK, I saw Rachel using potato starch to make a glaze. So I know what to do with that now. You know, mm. it's that kind of familiar familiarizing people with these weird ingredients that they might not have encountered before 
Yeah, I really like what you're saying about having fun with the process, getting inspired by what other people are cooking and what they're doing, and just starting really small with, you know, one day a week, or just go, you know, have fun, browse some cookbooks, kind of see what speaks to you in that sense, you don't have to go all out all at once. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and also going to, so I love going to the Asian, Asian supermarket and just buying random ingredients. That I don't even know what they are, but you know, just getting a sort of <laughs> a rough idea of like, has this got animals in it? No, I think I'm okay. And then just going home and open, like I bought, um, <laughs> so I bought this bag of what I thought were, uh, let me think of what the American equivalent would be. Um, like a Cheeto, but bigger. Oh, okay. So in the, in the UK, we'd, we've got these things called Watsits and they're maybe the size of your thumb and it's like a corn puff kind of snack. And I, I thought it was these. And so I got it home and it isn't. It's like a dried soy product that you rehydrate and then you've got meat, kind of meaty, chewy things. And again, this is just a wonderful discovery that I never would have had had I not... <laughs> randomly bought stuff at the Chinese supermarket mm-hmm. so I think mm-hmm. you know stepping outside of our comfort zones particularly for people in the west you know and I guess it, the converse must be true in the east I guess if they haven't <laughs> you know we we always think oh it's it's so far and exotic but I often wonder do Japanese people think that same way about blancmange but, <laughs> but um yeah so sort of and I guess it maybe there's a bit of bravery in that as well of thinking, oh, okay, I'll try, I'll buy something. I don't really know what it is, but I'll be able to Google it and find out how to cook it. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of fun in that and exposing yourself to different cultures and different palates and sort of learning a little bit about other parts of the world and doing that. Mm. Yeah, I love that. It's it's like a, a journey and exploration and it's a mystery of what's going to happen. Some things will work, some things won't. But in the meanwhile, you'll learn so much and, you know, play around with how you're eating and what you're eating and in a way that helps animals out there and that whole industry. Yeah, absolutely. And, the, you know, and then and the environment as well, you know, because it's mm-hmm. the I, animal agriculture has such an impact on on climate change, on the world. So any little things that we can do to try and minimize the impact that human life has on our planet, I think that can only be a positive thing for not just us, but for for the people that come after, you know? Yeah. And I I definitely think that this idea is only growing in human consciousness and people are becoming more and more aware of our effects on the environment and with animals uh, as well. Yeah, I think it's that sort of we're becoming more and more conscious, more kind, perhaps. And it's it's this, you know, people don't we're not shown in everyday life. We're not shown that male chicks get fed alive into blenders because they have no use in the egg industry. Mm. And it's like as soon as you become aware of this, you're like, how did I not know this? And okay, now I have to tell everybody. And then I suppose that's where the the kind of preachy vegan stereotype comes in for me. Mm. You know, I've caught myself doing it a couple of times and I'm like, well, that's not necessarily the most beneficial approach because people don't want to be confronted with what they're doing, what they're, what they're buying, basically. Yeah. You know, they're funding what is intrinsically abusive. So it's, yeah, it's just, it's, it's kind of opening people's minds and hearts and eyes in in ways that are effective i think and and that can only be beneficial not just in terms of humans to animals and humans to the planet but i think human to human if we can all become a little bit more compassionate generally i think our interactions will become more kind i think that ties in beautifully with you know sex education and not shaming people for watching pornography or eating meat it's really about showing alternatives to that and revealing the truth of how we're introduced to you know certain ways of eating or being or having sex and really understanding that there's just a bigger perspective we can take on these things and naturally when we grow more aware of what's going on behaviors will change on their own yeah 
And it's going gonna, it's gonna to take a lot of hard work and a lot of time before we, we move away from the amount of meat and animal products that we eat. It's, and we need to all be compassionate with each other and yeah. not, you know, immediately start sniping at each other and you're a terrible person. Well, you're annoying. And, you know, all these kind of, <laughs> yeah. you know, wars that you see happen on, on Twitter. But yeah, I think being gentle and just being open to receiving information and receiving knowledge and experience, you know, in whether that's vegan or sex education, or if that's in work experience or in, you know, buying shoes or video games, you know, just listening to what other people have to say. Mm. I think we can learn so much. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Rachel, for sharing your story and your beautiful journey that I'm sure is only going to unfold into more experiences and surprises. I really appreciate you coming on and being open because I know sex work, it's a difficult topic to own and to speak about publicly. And also the fact that you are vegan and you know, are now into that. I mean, it's just great to have such a multifaceted person on the show. So thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to uh, to speak and waffle about <laughs> things that are really hugely important to me. And, you know, I, uh, you know, I love being able to, to share some insight. I think it's a, it's a fantastic opportunity. So thank you very much. Thank you.